Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning, Chuck. Uh, we are glad uh, that you are here with us. My name is Randy. If you're new to Christ Bible Church, welcome. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, our teaching pastor, Paul Serban, uh, who was preaching last weekend, lest I forget, had his baby, uh, him and Stephanie's little, little girl, Laura, last Sunday evening on Reformation Day. Uh, despite my pleas to name her uh, Martin, uh, <laughs> didn't work. It's Laura. Um, but um, they're at home enjoying that. So Paul and Stephanie, if you're watching, congratulations. And uh, we're excited to meet Laura as a church. But as a church, we have been going through the Gospel of John. And today we arrive at John chapter 6, and one of the most famous uh, stories in all of the Gospels. And I don't say this by just people uh, knowing it well or it uh, being a frequently taught passage, but the story today that we look at here in John chapter 6, the feeding of 5,000, is the only story, narrative, that is in all four Gospels besides Jesus's death and resurrection accounts. And so it holds a unique piece of his ministry for us to explore, and I don't think it's uh, done just by chance. And so if you'll join me, uh, you can open up your Bibles to John chapter 6. We are going to be reading the first 21 verses together. Uh, there's scripture journals in the back, uh, so if you're new to Christ Bible Church, we don't hand out notes, we hand out journals that you can take notes in, and so feel free to grab one of those uh, and take notes during the sermon uh, in. But John chapter, one, or John chapter 6, verse 1, uh, let's read it together. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they, together, uh, so they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has who is come into the world. Perceiving then that they, were to, uh, that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea, the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, 
It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that as we gather together uh, this um, morning, as we open up your word here in John chapter 6, that we get to encounter the way that you work not just in scripture, but we're invited into the story to see the way that you're working amongst this crowd and amongst your disciples. And our prayer uh, is that we would be able to see and hear through the gift of the Holy Spirit, the things that you're trying to teach us through the text this morning, that we would be people who see the way that you meet the needs and work amongst this crowd and would leave with the desire to pursue you and know you greater. Father, we ask that you would help us to hear and understand your word this morning, that you would help me to preach your word effectively, that we might love you and adore you. In your name we pray. Amen. So where are we at as we continue in John's gospel? Well, chapter 6 has opened up as some time has passed. How do we know this? Well, two reasons. One, there's a location change. And Chuck always complains that I don't have maps. He likes maps. Chuck's preaching next weekend. So now, Chuck, you don't have to have a map because I have given everybody a map. Here's where we are. Judea at the bottom is where almost all of John's gospel takes place, in and around Jerusalem. But we have moved all the way to the northern part up near Galilee. And right on the edge of Galilee is this sea, the Sea of Galilee. And we are on the right side of it, two maps, double points this morning, right? On the right side... Right where you see Bethsaida, this is where this is happening. This is important for two reasons. One, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So these two disciples that we have mentioned this morning are from a nearby city where this miracle, this multiplication is taking place. We also see the sea in the way that they cross from the the upper right side there to the left going west to Capernaum so that you can see the trajectory of their trip in the boat and as Jesus is walking on the water to catch up with them. So the location has changed, but also the time has changed. As we read these opening verses in chapter 6, something kind of stands out. It doesn't seem like it necessarily fits in the narrative flow, and that's verse 4. We have this crowd growing, the location is changing, we're given all of this imagery, and now there's this little aside. Verse 4, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And then it just continues on, like this doesn't matter at all, as Jesus lifts up his eyes and he sees all these people. Why do they do that? Well, it also has shown time has passed, but the Passover is also the backdrop from which this entire uh, narrative takes place. What is the Passover? Some of you may be familiar with it. If you're not, the Passover begins in Exodus chapter 12, second book of the Bible. This is the tenth and final plague sent uh, by God as judgment on Pharaoh, and it's the death of the firstborn. It's a uniquely devastating plague in in this period of time. But the Passover is instituted as part of this because this judgment will pass over the Israelites. They will not have their firstborn die if they take a lamb, they slaughter it, and they spread the blood on their doorposts. 
Then the angel of the Lord, as it comes that evening, would spare or pass over these people's homes, and they wouldn't uh, face this plague, this tenth and final plague. The result of that, if you go back to Exodus, is the liberation, finally, of the Jewish people from the rule of Pharaoh. It's a time of rejoicing then and intense national pride for the Jewish people people ever, ever after as they remember this wonderful deliverance. The promised land of Canaan would finally become theirs. They were going to move from 400 years of captivity and slavery in Egypt to the promised blessing of the land of Canaan that God had given to their forefather Abraham. Year after year then they were commanded to keep this festival to keep this remembrance, to remember this time that God had delivered his people from Pharaoh into freedom and into the promised blessing that they uh, were hoping for and had held. Intrinsic to this feast, year after year, was the repeated slaughtering of a lamb. So each and every year as they gathered together for Passover, the Jewish people had to slaughter a lamb and eat this lamb as part of this feast. In doing this, they remember that night year after year after year. But in the Gospel of John, we are told repeatedly that the Lamb of God who will deliver the people from God's judgment is none other than Jesus. And so there's a foreshadowing here as these people are taking uh, this Passover feast. Jesus is in the wilderness, and there's this idea that Jesus is the Lamb of the Passover. There's all of these pieces beginning to come together. And so as Jesus is heading up this mountain at the beginning of chapter 6, as they're giving us the location and the backdrop of this story, we're given this image of this swelling national pride, these people who are pursuing this uh, prophet man, Jesus, who has done great healing miracles, and such a large crowd has gathered that Jesus and his disciples are sort of pushed up this mountain. This is what Jesus looks out on, a giant mass of people. And from this point forward, we see four steps in the narrative that show us what is going on and I think what we need to leave here this morning with. The first step is going to begin here in verse 5. Jesus sees the need of the people. Jesus sees the need of the people. Then the narrative continues, and we get to the second step of the miracle, uh, starting in verse 11. Jesus meets the need of the people. Then it continues. We get to 14 and 15, and we see that Jesus understands the ultimate need of the people. And then finally, verses 16, 16 to 21, Jesus demonstrates his ability to provide that ultimate need. And so let's begin with that first point. In verse 5, Jesus sees the need of the people. As Jesus and his disciples sit on this mountain looking down at this large crowd that has amassed below them, Jesus knows what these people need. Food. They're hungry. They're in the wilderness. They're far from their towns and locations. They've traveled all day. There's no food close by that they can purchase. Many of them have not brought food. They are in need of food. So Jesus can see this, but he also knows what he's going to do about it. He sees the need, 
And he knows how he's going to fulfill that, but before it happens, he's going to help his disciples grow in some understanding of who he is and what he does. And so in verse 5, he calls to Philip. Like I said, this makes logical sense because Philip was from a nearby town and would have knowledge of what was available and also the cost of these different items. And so he asks Philip, and Philip says, what? Lord, not this is where you should go to buy food. There's a town. It's about a 15-minute walk away. You should go there, take the second right. There's a nice guy. Uh, he's got the best bread in town. Then, then that's where we can buy all the bread. No, his answer isn't any help at all. He just simply says, even if we had 200 denarii, it wouldn't be enough for these people to even get a bite of food. 200 denarii, a denarii is a day's wage. So this might be something around the, the idea of maybe $20,000 or so today, so if we just look at the average annual income, uh, what people make. $20,000 or so wouldn't even be enough to buy one bite of food. But then it moves to this other guy, Andrew. What's Andrew say? He's like, uh, excuse me, there's a little boy over here. He's got a couple pieces of bread and a couple fish. I don't know if that's any help. It doesn't seem like it. Just wanted to let you know. And uh, then the story kind of moves forward. All of this happens in the background of verse 5 when he says he, he did this to test them. What is the nature of this test? What is he testing? The, or Sorry, verse 6, he said this to test them for he knew what he would do. What is the nature of this test? Well, it's not like a trickery or to see if they're going to fall into temptation. He's testing to see if they have yet understood who Jesus is and what the extent of his authority was. Would they, when Jesus asks them, look to their own resources or their own knowledge or their own ability to provide for this need, or would they look to Jesus? There's a question here to see where they're going to go. Do they really understand who this man that they're following is, or will they simply resort to their own abilities and knowledge? We see quickly they resort to their own knowledge and ability. They have no idea how to help. Philip says there's not enough Little Caesar's hot and ready's in the world to feed these people, right? as cheap as they are. Sensing that Philip's answer is inadequate, Andrew pipes up and is like, here's a couple meager things. Right? It's like if you have kids and you're wondering how to make a big purchase. Right? My daughter wants to buy things all the time, even like Barbies. The Barbies are like $50 these days. I don't understand it. They're very expensive. And I'll say, I'm sorry. Like, there's no money in the budget for a Barbie for you this month. And she says, but I have a quarter. You know, like... A quarter isn't going to help you get a Barbie. It's so far away from getting a Barbie. And she's like, well, I just thought I'd you know, offer what, you know, this is, maybe this will help. This is kind of Andrew. He has no solution, really. He's just like, ah, here's something. I don't know. Do something. Well, maybe. Is this helpful, Jesus? I don't think so. Says there's way too, more, too many people. Uh, what are these to so many? The end of verse 9. Andrew has no idea. But he points to this kid with a couple scraps of food, not full, big loaves. It's not like this kid's carrying around this awesome basket with these large loaves of bread. These barley loaves, barley was the bread of the poor. 
right? It's like bleached white bread. If you go to Fry's and you get the 99 cent loaf, it's like the worst bread you can buy uh, for multiple reasons, mainly your health, but uh, you can ask about that later, right? But it's this, these small little cakes almost, right? Maybe if you're a kid, you remember the granola uh, or, uh, rice cakes, Right, that your parents would put in your lunch and you threw like a hockey puck at somebody, uh, that might be something similar to what this kid has. It's not really going to go far. They're not these big loaves and a couple small fish that are pickled. But in the hands of Jesus, this will feed many people. But Philip and Andrew sit there and they simply look at their own resources and shrug their soldiers, or shoulders, knowing there's really no solution that they can come up with. So Jesus simply says, sit down. And the disciples and all these people sit and we're given insight into the situation here finally about how great the issue is, the magnitude of the situation. There are 5,000 men that have followed Jesus because of what he has done. Some scholars estimate that the total number of people there on that day may have been as many as 20,000. And so what we're meant to see is this is a massive group and therefore providing food for them would be a massive problem. Perhaps this is why Philip and Andrew are so quickly discouraged by the situation. It's a huge issue. But so often we are like these two people. We look at the issues facing us and we throw our hands up in defeat immediately. We look at our society perhaps crumbling around us in the world and we say, what hope is there? We see the needs of our neighbors or many people all over the world or even in our cities and we say, how can I possibly meet all the needs of these people? We struggle raising kids and we say, how can I possibly raise these kids well? Over and over we look at the magnitude of the situations in our life and we throw up our hands and we say, how can I do this? The issue is too great. The problem is too difficult to solve. I don't have the resources and ability to do that. But we're called this morning to look at these two individuals, Philip and Andrew, and be reminded not to look at the limitations of our own hands, but to look at the unlimited power and provision of Christ. This is the backdrop as this story is unfolding. These two guys have no idea what to do. Jesus already has the solution. Will they look to him or will they look to themselves? No problem is too big for God. Just as he had demonstrated previously in the wilderness when God would miraculously provide bread from heaven known as manna, so Jesus would also provide masses of bread this day for the masses. So Jesus takes this bread, he gives thanks, and he distributes it. What happens? They eat not just a bite like Philip had said 200 denarii would buy, they eat when? Until they are satisfied, until they've had their fill. There's a truth here about Christ when we look to our needs. What is that truth? He doesn't just provide for us one bite. He provides enough to completely satisfy our needs. This is a wonderful truth about Jesus. Why do we know this? Well, not only do they eat until they're full, as the story unfolds, what's happening? Jesus commands his disciples to go and gather the leftovers. And so his disciples head out and they take these baskets and they have 12 completely full baskets uh, of all of the leftover bread. What does this show? 
Well, there's representation here, I believe, of the 12 tribes of Israel, showing that there is more than enough for all who are God's people to be fed by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus will not just provide for his people, he will provide for his people Israel and beyond. There is plenty when it comes to Jesus to meet the needs of the day. But what is the result in this crowd as they see this miracle? Verse 14 and 15 show us. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. As the people see this miracle happening, they sense something. This man is special. There's a sign. What is the sign? The miraculous arrival of food for God's people. They're pulling in on the Exodus narrative, the Passover, and the people that were in the wilderness that God had fed with manna from heaven, and they think, this man is the man that we have been waiting for. Here in John 6, the setting in the wilderness remind us that Jesus is leading these people and providing for them just as Moses had spoken of and Moses had done. Surely the people think this is the second Moses, our long-awaited deliverer. Interestingly enough, Jesus doesn't rebuke this. He doesn't say that they're wrong for thinking this. Indeed, I think Scripture does point that Jesus is a type of second Moses. He's a person who will lead his people and speak to his people the very words of God. But the problem is for these people, he isn't the kind of Moses they're looking for. Jesus had seen the immediate need that these people needed food to get through the day. He had shown the ability to meet that need. But now he stands at this pivotal moment looking down at this crowd and knowing what their ultimate need was. These people had some autonomy even. They were led by King Herod, who was nothing more than a puppet king for Rome, but they still had uh, an ability to worship according to their own customs, the Jewish people. But these people felt that their ultimate need was freedom from Rome. They longed for independence, but this was not their ultimate need. And we're meant to see here even that this is not a normal group of people. How is the number told? 5,000 men. If you're like me, most of your life, especially when you're a little kid and you're at the felt boards in Sunday school, you know, you see this crowd and there's a bunch of people who are weak and hungry and they seem genuinely helpless, sitting and waiting for this food to come from Jesus. And so we think of this pack of people as weak and not having the ability to feed themselves or provide for themselves, but what we are meant to see is this is a pack of strong, abled body men. This is a guerrilla force that wants to go to war with Rome. They want to fight and get their freedom. And so they see this sign, this feeding of the food. They remember in light of the Passover that's happening and all of this history that they're drawing on, and they're connecting the dots and saying, this is the one who is the new Moses. This is the one that he had told us about. It comes from Deuteronomy 18, uh, starting at verse 15. Moses says this, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. 
And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I have commanded him. The desire from this, of this crowd, drawing on scripture, has a misunderstanding of what the role of this second Moses is. They think it of Moses as he delivered the people, as he brought them out of Egypt, as they delivered them from under the hand of an oppressive ruler, and this new Moses will do the same. He will provide liberation for the people of Israel. And they are now convinced that Jesus is this man that they had heard about and read about and dreamed about. And they think that there is nothing that would stop this man who has this kind of power from becoming the liberator that we have desired for a long time. If he can heal people miraculously, if he can take a few small pieces of bread and feed an army, is there anything that Rome could do to stand before this man's power? They are so convinced of this that even if Jesus is unwilling to listen to them and to lead them and assume this role of leadership as a type of general or military king, they will force him to. They will crown him king and in doing so declare a rebellion against Rome, forcing him to take this type of leadership role that they desire. This is not the actions of a peaceful or weak or helpless group of people. This is an army of men primed for war, dreaming about the glory of Moses and hoping to see it again through their own actions. This is the masses that Jesus is looking down on. But Jesus knows this isn't their ultimate need. They don't really need liberation from Rome. What they needed was liberation from sin. This is what was truly oppressing them. This is what truly was haunting them. And if Jesus falls into this temptation to neglect his calling as the suffering servant and savior in order to function as a military leader to provide freedom from Rome, he will not be giving these people and ultimately the entire world by extension what they actually need. So what does Jesus do? He leaves them. He heads up into the mountain by himself. And in doing so, so I think he shows us that it's often legitimate to leave a situation in the face of temptation. He's protecting himself, and even more, he's protecting his disciples, who no doubt had desires to see Israel liberated and powerful again. Jesus perhaps knows that given enough time, these people might be, his disciples might be swayed by the mob and join in with them with a desire to make Jesus the military king by force. And so he retreats. But in doing this, I think Jesus even more reveals there's a contrast between nationalistic pursuits and the pursuit of the kingdom of God. It's good for Israel to want freedom and the ability to worship away from Roman rule. But the better good isn't Israel being liberated. It's for the kingdom of God to expand beyond the people of Israel. There's a tension between pursuing earthly good and the desires of earthly kingdoms here while still keeping the ultimate good, the pursuit of Christ and his kingdom, the main thing. For us, this manifests itself in many different ways. One of the primary ways that I encounter and am tempted even in my own heart and soul is to give in to watching the news. Right? I generally try not to watch the news. Uh, why? Because it just makes me frustrated or mad. So we turn on the news, though, and we start to despair because a bill has passed or not passed or the Supreme Court voted a certain way or didn't vote a certain way. We see a harmful trend or something growing in society and we throw up our hands in despair and say, all is lost. 
But what we reveal in these moments is that our hope then is ultimately in our nation. We might say we trust God, but our trust in God is limited by the way he might work through our nation. We're reminded here that the ultimate good isn't the deliverance of a nation in John chapter 6, but the kingdom of God to come and liberate all people from the bondage of sin. We have to protect ourselves from having an overemphasis on an earthly kingdom. We're called here to trust in God's kingdom. He has a plan that does not fail. Now, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray for our nation. Indeed, if we look at Scripture, we're commanded to. It doesn't mean we shouldn't fight for good, righteous laws and mourn and lament and be torn and cry when we see bad laws that are hurting people past. But our hope is not in our nation. If we, if we do so and trust in our nation, our focus has been lost. God is not limited to using the United States of America to accomplish his plan. We can never forget that. Don't let your trust in God rest in the success or failure of our country. Let it rest in the person of Jesus. But as we go back to the story here, and the story winds down, Jesus demonstrates his ability to meet this ultimate need. The narrative flow has shifted. Time has moved. It's now night. The disciples have left Jesus, boarded a boat, and set off towards the west, towards the town of Capernaum in the evening. We're told it's dark, and Jesus is not with them. As the disciples are traveling by boat, a storm pops up. Now, this is not uncommon, and commentators such as D.A. Carson note that cool air from the southeastern tablelands were known to rush in and displace the warm, moist air over the lake, which sat 600 feet below sea level. The result of this was sudden stirring of the waters that created violent waves. The disciples find themselves then in the midst of this sudden storm in the dead of night, several miles away from shore, away from their master, and they begin to worry. Their ultimate worry comes because something crazy happens. They look out on this wild, stormy night, and there is a man walking on the water. That's not normal. They start to panic a little bit, but what does Jesus say? Don't fear, it's I. His one word calms these people. What is Jesus demonstrating here? Why is John tack this on to this story of the feeding of the 5,000? Jesus here is demonstrating his ability to fulfill the ultimate need, to be the one who will deliver the people from the bondage of sin. He's not just some prophet or some king. He will do more than protect his disciples. He will demonstrate that he alone is the one who commands the sea. And in this, he will show his readers and us uh, us today that he alone is God. How does he do this? By walking on the water and commanding the sea. If we read the scriptures and are familiar with the Old Testament, certainly the disciples of Jesus' day would have known this very well, that the Bible often represents the sea as chaos and disorder, and the one who controls this and calms it is God. And so to demonstrate that he is the one that has command over the sea, he is demonstrating that he alone is God. We get this from places like Job 38, uh, where Job and God are talking And God is saying, who are you, Job? Uh, And where were you when I did these things? And in verse 8, it picks up. Or who shut in the sea with doors 
and burst from the womb when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther, farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. God is telling Job, I am the man who has commanded even the extent to which the seas and the ocean go. Or we can go to Psalm 89, 9, which tells us this about God. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. The disciples find themselves stuck in the midst of this unruly sea, but their fear is immediately calmed when they hear their master calling to them. He identifies himself. They are happy to bring him on board. And it says they immediately are at the other side. The sea has been calmed and they're able to reach their destination. They are no longer alone. Their master, the one who commands the sea, is with them. It would not have been unusual for the sea to calm down as suddenly as it stirred up. But lest we think that something more than just regular nature is happening here, Jesus walks on the water. He does more than command the waves of the sea and bring chaos to the ocean. He not only commands it, he has the ability to walk on it. Jesus is showing his disciples that this is indeed who he is. He is God. He has command over creation that only God has, and thus Jesus is able to meet their ultimate need because Jesus is the God-man, the one and only Son of God, who has the same honor, attributes, names, deeds, and seat as the Father. If you remember back to when we started John, we point to John 20. You should memorize this verse as you read through John because it's helpful as we read all these different stories and verses. This is the purpose of John. John is writing, we see, because there's a false belief about Jesus that he wasn't really the Son of God creeping into the church. So John writes this in verses 30 to 31 of of chapter 20. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so we are called this morning to look at the feeding of the 5,000 men, the walking on the water, and see that Jesus is the Son of God, sent by God the Father in order to provide for his people. He is the one who leads his people not in a liberation from the forces of man, but will lead them in a liberation from the spiritual forces of evil and from sin. His victory will provide the assurance. Just as God had passed over the Israelites when he delivered them out of Egypt, so through the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, we see that a greater pardon will be passed over as our sins are passed over through the blood of Christ. This is what we are pointed towards this morning. And we're, in, we're invited to respond by joining the kingdom of God, by pursuing the kingdom of God above all earthly kingdoms, to believe that Jesus not only knows our needs, but is the only one actually capable of meeting them and giving us life. So what is our application as we wrap up this morning? Two questions. First, do you believe that Jesus not only knows your needs, but can meet them? We read this text this morning and we see the, the meeting of the need of food and the meeting of the need of even liberation. And we have to ask ourselves, do we look at the problems of our day through the lens of our limited resources and ability, 
or do we look at our problems through the lens of the unlimited resources and power of Christ? That's the question one that we need to ask ourselves. Second, do you see your ultimate need as victory over present circumstances in your life, or do you see your ultimate need as reconciliation with God? Do we really believe that what we need most isn't for our life to improve today, but for us to be reconciled with God that we might have life for eternity? And if we believe that the latter is true, our ultimate need is reconciliation with God, what implications then does this have when talking to people who do not believe in Jesus yet? Do we lead with how Jesus might improve their life, or do we need lead in these discussions with pointing them towards their ultimate need, reconciliation with the Savior, the one who's uniquely qualified to meet their needs, not just of the day, but in order to have salvation and life forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that as we see this story unfolding in the feeding of the 5,000, that we're reminded to not be like Philip and Andrew to not be men and women who trust in our own abilities, who rely on our own resources, but Lord, we want to be men and women who rely on the unlimited resources of Christ. Lord, we want to see the kingdom of God flourish. We want our trust and our hope to be grounded in your work and in your kingdom. And so we pray that you would help us that this morning we would look to you not as a magic genie to improve our life, but as a Savior who lived and died, who is worthy of our submission and worthy of us to follow. Father, we want to be the people who pursue Christ, who live life like he lived, meeting the needs of those that are around us, but pointing people towards their ultimate need and reconciliation with you. Might you help us to be more effective in sharing the gospel? Might you help us to lean not on our own understanding or ability or resources, but lean into you and trust you with all that we have and all that we are tasked to do in this life. Father, might we become able, not through our own power, but through yours, to meet the needs of the day. It's in Christ that we ask these things. Amen.